FDF Awards. One of the most prestigious nights in the food and drink calendar is online 3rd of February. For details of this and other FDF events, including our online convention, visit our website, fdf.org.uk. FDF, passionate about food and drink. And welcome back to the third and final session of the Food and Drink Federation's event, Brexit Essentials. Um, in this panel, we're going to be looking at uh, immigration and workforce arrangements. And uh, I'll be joined by my colleague, uh, one of our policy managers who looks after the topic, Mark Harrison, and also by Annabel Mace of global law firm Squire Pattern Box. Without further ado, I will pass over to Mark Harrison. Um, I'm going to do a quick introduction on, on this. Um, I think just the sort of first reflections are that it, it's interesting that um, given a lot of the referendum uh, conversations around immigration, it sort of it seems to have since died away um, as an issue. And I think one possible reason for that is that we are a bit more advanced in knowing where we are, where we stand on immigration than we are on some of these sort of trade and regulation issues that were previously discussed. So um, here's a quick sort of overview and timeline of some of the basics for those who have not uh, been engaged in this conversation much up to now. And then uh, we're going to go through a bit more detail on how to plan for upcoming changes. Um, And then Annabelle will be leading the sections primarily focused on um, what being an immigration sponsor means and how to use the skilled worker route um, as an employer. So just to begin with as an overview, um, this timeline starts on the 1st of December because that is when the new skilled worker visa opens. So for those who have not engaged with this before, um, the previous uh, skilled worker visa was known as the tier two general visa. That has now been closed and been replaced with the skilled worker visa. Um, So you'll see the bottom um, rectangle of this timeline is for those who are um, not from the EEA. The EEA is the EU uh, plus uh, Norway, Liechtenstein and Iceland uh, and Switzerland. So these are basically all the countries that are covered under freedom of movement with the EU and the broader European economic area. For um, individuals not from this country, the new skilled week, skilled worker visa is open. Uh, and uh, for uh, these individuals, the new immigration system is actually probably more liberal uh, than the previous one. So uh, whereas the previous immigration system only allowed people um, on to uh, get a tier two visa if they were in a role that was at degree level, uh, this um, reduces that skill threshold and it reduces the salary requirement as well. We'll come on to that in a bit more detail later. Um, just to set out um, the slightly more complicated picture above, there's these three boxes around uh, what happens for EEA and Swiss nationals, um, although that excludes Irish nationals, I should point out at this point, because Irish nationals and UK nationals um, are both able to live and work in each other's country without a visa under something called the Common Travel Arrangement. So for the rest of the afternoon, this conversation really excludes Irish citizens who will see no real change. Um, but for those who are from um, the EEA and Switzerland, Um, Freedom of movement currently still applies to new entrants um, and it will apply up until uh, the 31st December 2020. Um, So I'll take these sort of three uh, lines across the timeline in turn. So up until the 31st December 2020, freedom of movement currently applies for these individuals. Uh, Beyond that, uh, new entrants will require a visa to work in the UK. Um, And you'll see that that comes in um, from the 1st of January 2021. So Europeans will be able to come to the UK um, to visit and for sort of certain short-term business visitor arrangements, but for long-term work, um, a visa will be required, even though it's sort of entry at the border will still be um, permitted. 
Uh, going on to the second uh, line there around the EU settlement scheme. So for those who are not familiar with this, I think most people are by now, just in case you're not. This is a scheme where EU um, or EEA and Swiss nationals are able to uh, remain in the UK beyond the 30th of June 2020. It's a free, uh, relatively simple application and certainly far um, cheaper and far simpler than uh, most visa applications. Um, so those who are um, settled in the UK by 11pm on the 31st of December are eligible for the scheme. There's a slightly um, strange sort of grace period around the start of next year. So uh, those arriving after um, the 31st of December 2020 will not be eligible for the EU settlement scheme. However, um, those who are eligible for the EU settlement scheme have until the 30th of June to apply for it. And apologies for the typo I've just spotted there. That should obviously be the 30th of June 2021. Um, but there is a um, slightly strange situation here um, in terms of right to work checks, as we can see on the third line. So at present, um, employers are still able to accept EEA and Swiss passports or ID cards um, for um, a right to work check, much of the same way as now, and that will continue until the 30th of June. Um, after that point, you will be required to uh, check whether someone has uh, settled status or whether they have a work visa. So. There's, a, there's some clarity you're sort of trying to get from the Home Office on how exactly this sort of six month period at the start of the year works, because it's not entirely clear. Um, we can come on to that a bit more detail later in the questions. I think now we'll move on to actually look at uh, what the sort of future holds. So this is sort of a summary of how the changes are gonna come about. So what's this gonna look like uh, under the new system? So although there are um, many routes in the new system, some uh, developed, some still in development, um, for a lot of roles, the skilled worker visa is going to be the main route to try and recruit people uh, from overseas. Um, and here's just a sort of side-by-side um, -side comparison of recruiting through freedom of movement versus recruiting via the uh, skilled worker visa. So the current right to work checks um, for uh, EAF Swiss nationals is just a, a passport or ID card. Uh, there's no specific skills threshold. There's a salary threshold, only um, the national minimum wage or national living wage for employees. That's not done through the immigration system. That's done just through standard um, national minimum wage and national living wage uh, legislation and checks. Uh, bureaucracy is the standard right to work check. You would also uh, carry out for, for uh, a UK national to confirm they have the right to work. Uh, and there are no sort of specific additional costs. Um, I think it's worth sort of clarifying how there's differences really across all of these for the skilled worker visa. So recruiting from uh, the from, from Europe is going to be uh, very different going forward. So first of all, the right to work is dependent on successful visa application, um, which we'll come on to in a bit more detail. Uh, there's a skills threshold, so the role that's being performed must require an A-level or equivalent qualifications or experience. Um, just to unpack that a little bit, it doesn't matter whether the individual actually has this qualification, if they have um, experience, which means they can do a role that is classified as skilled, um, then that makes them eligible. So it's 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 down to the government in terms of determining the skill level for a role. Um, and uh, you'll be able to see um, as a downloadable document our five essential steps on workforce immigration for Brexit. There's more details on everything there, but in particular this fairly thorny um, div business of who is in a skilled role, who is not, is covered in some of the hyperlinks that cover this in more detail there. 
Similarly, with the salary threshold, more information available in the download, but um, the salary threshold essentially is dependent on the role. So if the role meets the skills threshold, you then have to check what the salary threshold is. Uh, it's £25,600 or higher for most roles. Uh, for roles where the um, median pay is higher, there'll be a higher salary threshold. However, it can be as low as £20,480 uh, for shortage roles. So these are roles the government um, have determined are in national shortage, either across the UK or within one of the developed nations. And there's also shortages for employees with a PhD, where that PhD is uh, relative is um, related, sorry, to the job they're performing. And also interestingly for something called new entrants. So new entrants uh, includes um, those that have been on a student visa, those currently on the, a new graduate visa, which will allow um, students uh, from overseas to stay on in the UK for uh, some some two years after after that, uh, and also for anyone under the age of twenty six at the time of application. So uh, there are there are ways to lower the salary um, required for one of these visas if that is going to be an impediment to uh, making hiring someone economical. In terms of the bureaucracy, again, real step change to what there is at the moment. Visa application process. Uh, the government are looking to streamline this. Uh, get it down to um, taking a matter of weeks, but at present it still does take months and it's likely to fall um, well into 2021 and probably into 2022 as well until the new system is, is finalised. Um, but also it's not simply a case of filling out the forms and then and then, then everything's done. Uh, being a uh, what's called a licensed, uh, a sponsor licensed employer, you have to apply for a licence to be able to uh, sponsor people on a skilled worker visa. Um, and there are ongoing sort of costs and management of that, which uh, Annabelle is going to cover in more detail later on. In terms of some of those costs, um, for medium and large companies, it's approximately £10,000 in visa costs and charges per sponsored employee for a five-year visa. Um, and again, there's there's another challenge here in that about half of that is um, the employer is required to pay, but then there's a question mark around whether some of the other charges um, you can pass on to the employee. Now that is um, that is permitted, but it's a case of, do you want to burden a new employee with those costs? Will that make you less competitive against employers who are covering those costs? So that, that's a real um, something to unpack uh, within your business. As well as the cost per employee, it's um, approximately 1,500 um, 1, pounds, sorry, uh, for a four year sponsor license for large uh, employer, it's about £500 for small employers, where small employers is defined as um, 50 people or less or under certain turnover thresholds. Um, so this is um, these are the five essential steps in top line form um, that we have um, sent out to you and should be downloadable as part of this webinar. Um, so the first thing is around really supporting your current employees to apply to the EU settlement scheme by June 2021. So as mentioned, yeah, this allows EEA and Swiss citizens to stay in the UK. Um, you need to be settled in the UK by the 31st of December 2020 to be eligible, but the application window is open until the 30th of June. Um, it's probably also worth noting that um, you may currently be employing uh, employees who are from outside of the, that um, freedom of movement area, so non-Europeans whose right to work might be dependent on their relationship with um, a European uh, in the UK. Uh, these individuals can also apply um, to the EU settlement scheme as a sort of partner application for that. So that's something worth considering. This is something making 
um, your whole workforce aware of really because it may be applicable to some people who, who aren't aware. And just to clarify again, um, for Irish nationals, there is no need uh, to apply to this scheme uh, unless they are in that situation where they have a, a non-European uh, partner or dependent. The second step is around understanding your future workforce needs and whether it's feasible to meet these through the new immigration system. Um, so as we've outlined, there's going to be significant changes for hiring uh, from the EEA in Switzerland. Um, and again, you, I think it's about understanding firstly whether your role um, that you want to hire for meets that skill level. And again, the links in the document will help you to do that. And then also it's checking whether it's uh, feasible for you to pay the required salary threshold. And again, that's, that's also um, in the document. It's also worth understanding as again, I mentioned some of the areas where you can lower that salary threshold by, for instance, if you have applicants who have PhDs or younger applicants, or if the role you're uh, recruited for is a designated shortage occupation. So if you've done that first step and you think it is uh, sort of feasible and affordable in terms of ongoing costs, um, it's worth then uh, understanding the additional costs and responsibilities that will come from hiring through the points-based immigration system as a licensed immigration sponsor. So as mentioned, uh, you pay approximately £1,500 every four years to maintain that sponsor license as a large employer, around £500 for small businesses. Um, but there's also um, further roles, responsibilities um, and uh, people you need to designate to manage that system, um, which again, Annabelle will discuss um, in more detail shortly. Um, and again, this is an area where you need to uh, decide where these costs will fall. Some have to fall on you as an employer, some can be passed on to the employee. Um, it depends how you want to take that forward and, and whether you think it's sort of feasible to take on those costs to make yourself more attractive to prospective employees. In terms of the sort of bigger picture, we'd encourage um, <coughs> uh, members to collect data and information on employment shortages faced by your business to better inform government immigration policy going forward. So. Um, as mentioned, the skilled worker visa has already been launched um, and freedom of movement is ending, but there are other areas of the um, immigration system that are still um, being developed, being explored um, and having evidence to feed into government consultations, both for yourselves and also um, to submit to us FTF to um, submit uh, to government um, helps us to make the argument for, for why there might be sort of the need for certain changes. So one very specific example of this is the uh, Migration Advisory Committee, which is the government's um, appointed sort of academic advisory group, but who actually really sort of get into the, the policy side of things as well and make recommendations that for the most part um, have been followed in recent years. Um, they each year consult with businesses on where there are shortage occupations in the UK and in the devolved nations. And so where we are able to uh, feed in direct evidence from employers that they are struggling to recruit for a particular role, um, despite having perhaps taken quite imaginative and uh, thorough approaches to recruitment in the UK, where we can show those shortages, that is uh, strong evidence for that body to then recommend certain roles are added to the shortage occupation list. And as mentioned previously, that brings down the salary requirement and also allows for slightly cheaper visa fees. So there's that very specific example, but also um, this is a new system. It's going to be interesting how it beds in, particularly with the turbulence in the labour market caused by COVID-19. Um, and I think there is uh, room for uh, changes, tweaks, even if we're not going to see a return to freedom of movement. And finally, most of this so far has been sort of inbound focused. Um, it's important to understand the settlement and immigration requirements 
of individual EEA member states and Switzerland if you employ UK citizens who currently work or will work in these countries. Um, so the end of freedom of movement also means that UK citizens lose the automatic right to live and work in the EEA and in Switzerland. Um, so uh, one thing worth mentioning first off is for any citizen, UK citizens you currently have in those countries, EU countries are required to have a settlement scheme similar to the UK's settlement scheme uh, for UK nationals in their countries, similar to the UK's settlement scheme uh, for UK nationals in their countries. Um, each country will have a different scheme and it will not be an EU-wide scheme, it will only apply to that individual member state. So for instance, if you have um, a site in Germany and you have UK nationals who have been working there and living in Germany, they'll be able to apply for the German uh, settlement scheme. Uh, the schemes are different in each country with different requirements and different timelines. Again, in the downloadable document, there is a link to the uh, European Commission site, which summarises uh, where you can get more information on all of these. As well as that, in terms of future um, uh, workers going from the UK into the EU who are UK citizens, each member state will have their own immigration rules. So the EU has a common uh, sort of freedom of movement internally, but in the same way that the UK has its own policies for um, those who aren't from the EU um, whilst we were an EU member, um, so do each individual member states. You will need to understand what each member state's uh, rules are, both for business visitors and for sort of longer term workers. Um, and there will be uh, differences again by member state and you will only have permission for an individual member state, not necessarily to say do a business trip that encompasses France, Germany, Austria. Um, you will need to check each, each of those individual states rules rather than assuming you're covered under uh, EU freedom of movement. And a final point not covered here is um, something that's sort of come to light in the Financial Times today is that the UK citizens might be subject to tougher COVID travel restrictions from the 1st of January. Uh, so that is something that's outside of immigration policies sort of strictly speaking or should I say in the traditional sense but this is a new a new thing to be aware of um, so that it's, it seems that we've been benefiting from some leniency in terms of COVID restrictions um, as a member of the EU, as a sort of transitional member, should I say, of the EU, that may change from, from the 1st of January. So that, that's something else in the sort of very short term to be aware of. Um, I think that is covered all of that. We'll have time for questions on any of that at the end, but I'm going to hand over to Annabelle now to cover um, this area in more detail, particularly around sort of requirements an application process for an immigration sponsor license. Thank you, Mark. Um, so I'm Annabelle Mace. I'm a partner specialising in immigration and employment law at the, at the law firm Squire Passon Box. Mark mentioned the need for uh, UK employers and organisations to hold a sponsor license if they want to hire um, EU citizens from the 1st of January 2021 who don't already have the right to work in the UK. So what we thought it'd be helpful to do for those organisations, particularly for those organisations that do not already um, hold a sponsor licence, um, because largely perhaps they've been um, happily, you know, a, a large part of their workforce has been made up of EU citizens for whom there has been no need, obviously, to obtain uh, visas up until now. Uh, there may be many uh, organisations who are now considering uh, applying for a sponsor licence. So we thought it'd be helpful to really go into a bit more detail about what is involved 
because of course there's a cost in, involved in, in, in applying for a sponsor license so that you can have a better understanding um, as to whether or not feasibly this is something you can take on um, as part of your business and, and if you can't uh, having sort of considered what I'm about to talk about whether you then really need to rethink your strategy in, ter in terms of recruitment. So as Mark mentioned um, a sponsor license will be needed by those organisations that are going to be uh, hiring uh, EEA citizens, and that excludes Irish citizens, but EEA and Swiss citizens from the 1st of January. For those organisations, there'll be plenty of organisations that have been sponsoring non-EEA citizens up until now who will already hold a sponsor licence. And although the, the current changes that have been going on as part of the immigration system, it's been heralded as a, as a new immigration system. Actually, what it is, is that it's the current immigration system that's been in place since 2008 for non-EU citizens. Um, it's undergone a bit of a sort of uh, rebranding exercise. Essentially, the, the uh, thresholds, the skills criteria threshold, uh, the skills and salary thresholds have, have been adjusted. Essentially, it's the same system that we've had in place for quite some time. Um, so there will be plenty of organisations out there who already have a sponsor licence and those that, that, that did prior to the 1st of December, that licence will have been upgraded, if you like, from that date so that going forward those organisations can also sponsor EEA uh, and Swiss citizens uh, from the 1st of January. Um, and Mark talked a bit about the terminology that was used. So for those of you that are already familiar, there's a tier two general visa, which is the main route uh, for work permits. And that's now going to be known as a skilled worker visa. And the intracompany transfer visas sort of largely remain the same. So I'm going to go through uh, some of the, the key aspects of what it means to hold a sponsor license and what you would be committing yourself to and how you should prepare to apply for one if that's uh, what you're minded to do. So there's a couple of a few things to think about before you actually embark on applying for a sponsor license. So the key considerations are having the right personnel in place in order to manage that system. So you'll need to think in advance about appointing somebody called an authorising officer on the licence. The authorising officer is effectively the person that has overall responsibility for ensuring that compliance is, is maintained, that, that effectively the buck stops with them when it comes to the sponsor licence. It would be the authorising officer that the Home Office wanted to talk to if they came and carried out an audit, either in person or, or over the phone. Um, and so the authorising officer is the, is the main person, and that is the person who will uh, also apply for the sponsor licence. He has to press send and, and submit the application. There's also someone called a key con contact. The main point of contact that you would like to put in place uh, for, for the Home Office, um, if they have sort of any administrative queries. Um, and then you'll have someone called a level one user. Now, this, these three roles can be held by one person, but sometimes you may want to put in place a more senior person as authorising officer and say key contact. And then the level one user is the person that has day-to-day -day access to the licence and is responsible, for example, for assigning certificates of sponsorship and making the, the necessary updates. So it's, it really depends on the structure of your business. The authorising officer is supposed to be the person who's uh, ultimately responsible for recruitment in your organisation. 
So historically, that has been, you know, someone who's head of HR, an HR director. Sometimes it's a it's a finance director because ultimately that's the person that sort of has has control when it comes to recruitment. It just depends on the structure of your business, but it is important to know that you can appoint people into those roles on the license, um, and that they will they don't necessarily have to have any special training or knowledge to be able to do this, but they need to have they need to sort of be committed. To and, and fairly organised and willing and able to um, sort of meet and comply with the sponsor compliance duties. As part of the application, you'll also be required to submit various supporting documents to show that your business is probably properly established as an employer. So there are typically four documents that you have to provide um, from a, a from a list of possible list of about seven or eight. Typically, these will include your sort of a copy of your latest uh, company accounts, um, an employer's liability insurance certificate, a VAT certificate, and a copy of your lease. So, all things properly to, to show that you're established as an as an employer in the UK. Um, so, that's the sort of practical element of what you'll need to do. And you'll also need to think about whether you have, say, the resources for somebody to who's willing to understand and put in place. HR-related systems to meet your various sponsor compliance duties, and I'm going to talk about in a bit later in a bit more detail about what that actually means in practice. And so, if you decide to go ahead with applying for the front for a license, there is an online form to complete, um, and that has to, as I said before, that that could be completed by somebody else. Ultimately, the authorising officer has to check that and sign off on it, press the submit button, um, and, and it's, it's that authorising officer who is giving the go-ahead. At the same time, you pay the fee, depending on the size of your organisation, and you will file your supporting documents. Um, now, during since the beginning of the pandemic, the Home Office has become much more relaxed about sending in copy rather than original documentation, and they've, they've indicated that they're going to continue with that process. So that's certainly been one of the more positive aspects of COVID is that you don't have to sort of send in formally certified documents or original documents to the Home Office anymore. So I talked earlier about compliance duties, um, and this is, is worth understanding that, um, you know, as if, you, if you're intending to sponsor EU citizens or even non-EU citizens going forward, uh, a key part of that will obviously be having your licence in place, and then the next big event will be actually going through the process that you need to to get that visa, uh, supporting the employee to submit their application and so on. And, and then they'll be granted their visa. But what's quite often misunderstood or, or, or not realised is that once the licence, the visa has been granted, there is then still um, various duties and uh, obligations to, to meet for, for the duration of that person's visa. And, and that's because sponsorship is a trust-based system. What happens is you get your, as an organisation, you get your, li your licence is granted. Um, and then with that comes this freedom to effectively assign your own work authorization documents, which are referred to as certificates of sponsorship or COS for short. Um, and it's when you assign one of these certificates, it's not like the home office, you submit it to the home office and the home office approves it. You're effectively completing that document yourself. That's done on trust. The applicant then uses their certificate to apply for a visa. 
So it's a crucial document because without that cause, that you know, that that's what they really need to, to go ahead with the process and get permission to work in the UK. But the key thing is the errors that, that are put in that go into that might occur when completing a cause, what either deliberately or, or inadvertently, those can often go unchecked by the Home Office. It won't necessarily be something that's picked up by them at the at the visa application stage. So for example, if you've incorrectly assessed whether someone's skilled to the right level or they're being paid the right salary, that won't necessarily be picked up until the visa is granted, um, until after the visa is granted and you're audited by the Home Office. So it could be some years down the line. Um, so it's really important to, to make sure you get that part right at, at the beginning and then um, you, and then you, you sort of go on to comply with the various obligations that come with that visa. Um, and so with this privilege of being granted a license, the Home Office are effectively saying, well, we're not going to check every single thing that you do, but we reserve the right to come and audit you, carry out a compliance visit at any time with or without notice. Um, and typically these happens, uh, the, the Home Office would visit, visit your organisation. Sometimes it happens before your licence is granted. Uh, more often it's some, at some point throughout the duration of your sponsor licence. Um, uh, during since the pandemic, um, they have now got into a system of carrying out telephone audits rather than in-person audits for, for obvious reasons. Um, but in either situation, you'll of course want to be pretty well prepared um, by making sure that you fully understand what your compliance duties are and that you've assigned any certificates of sponsorship correctly, because you don't want to be faced with a situation where you've, the, the, the visa has been granted, the person's been working in it for some time, and at that point the Home Office says, oh well, this isn't being done correctly, you're in breach of your duties, because in the worst case scenario, if you are, that could lead to your sponsor licence being revoked. Uh, and ultimately, the dismissal of any sponsored employees, even if they're not uh, involved in, 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 the, in the related breach. So that's why it's so important to sort of get this right at the outset, because with that freedom comes a sort of uh, ability to get it wrong, either to make mistakes or to not comply with your duties. Uh, and then the ultimate risk is that you would lose that, that sponsor licence. So it is, I would say, uh, it's still manageable, and I don't want to scare anybody from or put anyone off applying for a sponsorship license. But it is worth kind of really understanding what's involved and and having the right people in place to be able to deal with those responsibilities. So, I, and, I, and that's I'm going to talk a bit more about what those compliance duties are. And some of these things are what you would do as a good employer in the course of your ordinary business. The main one is generally the prevention of illegal working. So that is ensuring that you do right to work checks um, and have correct right to work documentation in place for all your employees, not just those who are not British. So it's across the board. Um, most employers will be aware of that obligation to do proper, carry, um, proper right to work checks before employment starts and then follow up checks for anybody that has a visa. Um, so having a robust system to track that visa type and the expiration date um, and making sure that before that visa expires, you've checked with the employee um, that they have, you know, that they're making arrangements to extend that visa. So quite often when the Home Office come and doesn't, comes to do an audit, one of the first things they'll ask an employer is, right, can you provide an, a, 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 a report? 
report of all your employees with uh, a list of their right to work, whether they're British or, or, or not British, um, copies of what right to work documentation you've got in place, um, and for anybody who's got visas, how are you tracking those visa expiry dates? It's a very common request, even before they get into the process of looking at your sponsored employees. So that's absolutely key and something that employers should be getting their house in order in that respect anyway. When it comes to sponsored employees, there are probably um, three key sort of duties. One is record keeping. So for each sponsored employee, depending on the role they're holding um, and the type of visa that they're sponsored under, there are specific documents that you need to keep in place. Um, and those are all listed under something called Appendix D um, uh, on the Home Office website. Um, so that's fairly clear in terms of what you need to do in that respect. Um, then there's a slightly more grey area, which the Home Office refers to as monitoring sponsored employees' whereabouts and absences. So that's a number of specific things, like you are supposed to keep uh, a history of their your sponsored employees' uh, home addresses. You don't have to tell the Home Office about that, but you always have to have uh, a record of that. And if they move address, then you should um, not just, you, you still keep a, a record of their previous address. So it's kind of slight, you know, you, you keep the, the entire history. So slightly quirky things like that, which you might not necessarily do as part of your ordinary HR systems. In addition, um, you have to show the Home Office that you have some sort of system for monitoring employees' whereabouts when they're at work. So you don't need to know sort of where they're going on holiday, but the Home Office would want to know how you would realise if a sponsored employee hadn't turned up for work. So that you need some sort of system in place um, over and above your normal holiday reporting system. And you know that could be as simple as informing the employee of their obligations to keep the employer informed um, and sending similar guidance to their line manager so everybody's on board about uh, reporting absences. Um, and then the, the, the fourth kind of main duty relates to what we call reporting. Um, so certain events for sponsored employees must be reported within 10 working days and that includes things like a change in position, job description, uh, salary, work location, start and end of sponsorship or indeed company ownership. So when you look at your compliance duties and you look at the Home Office guidance, it may seem very detailed and there's sort of many, many pages dealing with what the obligations are. It is though possible to distill it down into those these sort of four key areas um, and not as daunting as it sounds once you kind of get down into the nitty gritty of it and start working through those various obligations. But it is certainly worth understanding that that's what we're going to be required to do in advance of applying for, for a licence and, and, and working out whether you're going to have someone who can do that um, and then complying with those duties throughout the, for the duration that you, you sponsor any employees. So we talked about the compliance duties. I just thought it would be helpful, and I know Mark has touched on this a bit already, but just to summarise what the key criteria are for skilled workers and intracompany workers, because that's the process. When you say, right, okay, well, we've got a candidate, they need sponsorship, so how do we work out whether or not they're eligible? And this is just a very quick table to, to kind of give you an overview. You've got the minimum salaries, um, and 
this 25,600 has been reported widely. It, you have to take that with a pinch of salt because in addition to that 25,600, as part of the process, the out, at the outset of the process, what you would have to do is look at that individual's role. Then you match it to something called a SOC code or a, a, an occupational code, which is on the Home Office website. Um, and each job role has a different SOC code. And that SOC code will tell you what the going rate is for that role. And that may be higher than, than 25,600. So for example, some IT manager roles are in sort of 40,000 plus. So you would have to pay that person, unless they were treated as a new entrant, you'd have to pay that person the going rate, which is 40,000 plus more than 25,600. Um, uh, and as part of that process of matching the role to a SOC code, you would be able to, to check that it was sufficiently skilled to RQF3 or above or RQF6 if you're going to be sponsoring somebody under the intra-company transfer route. Um, visas are, uh, you can uh, apply for them for any duration up to five years initially. For skilled worker visas, those can be extended indefinitely, which is, which is a new thing. Um, for intercompany transfer workers, uh, there's a limit of, of five years in any six-year period unless the salary is above 73,900. One of the key things, procedural aspects that I think people are possibly not aware of is the requirement to for a skilled worker visa holder to meet the certain English language requirement, which I'm going to talk about in a bit more detail. Um, and then key as well is, is understanding whether, you know, if you have the option to use a skilled worker or an intercompany worker visa, is that only skilled worker visas lead to uh, indefinitely to remain, which is, is the equivalent of permanent residence after five years in the UK. So again, these are all things to take into consideration at the outset of the process. So mentioned on the previous slide about a skilled worker visa holders needing to meet the English language requirements. So this is something that's going to apply to EU citizens who will need sponsorship in the future, not to those who are eligible and have obtained pre-settled or settled status, but for those who are going to be sponsored, they will have, if they can't, if you want them to come to the UK with a skilled worker visa as part of that process, you're going to need to demonstrate, or the individual is going to need to demonstrate that they meet a certain level of English language. So that can be met in a number of different ways. Um, if they're from a majority English-speaking country, then that's they've already met that requirement. But typically, if you're recruiting from someone from the EU, unless they have dual nationality with another country, it's possible they don't um, don't meet that requ the requirement in that way. Alternatively, they can meet a very prescribed English language test, or they can demonstrate that they've got a degree taught in English. The reason why I'm mentioning this is because, in some ways, the whole process is quite streamlined and can go quite quickly if all the right bits fall into place at the right time. But the English language process could actually slow the process, slow, slow everything down by between three and six, or between three to six weeks. And that's because if a test is needed, it can be very difficult to get a test at the appropriate appointment testing centre and I think some of it throughout Europe some of the testing centres are actually closed at the moment so um, that's one of the key considerations that you might not be able to get somebody here as, as quickly as, as you thought they could if they have to go through this English test process 
And then this is just an overview of the steps that are involved. It really is very a very, very sort of pared down version of what happens, but it's, it, it deals with the key requirements. So what, having got your sponsor license, if you wanted to sponsor somebody, this is what you would be looking to do. You would assess the role, skill level, and the salary that you'd be willing to pay and look at the appropriate SOC code um, to see whether you, you know that role has, has a high enough salary is, and is sufficiently skilled. Um, so you would that would be your first thing to check. Then you would gather specific information from the applicant so that because you would need that to uh, complete the certificate of sponsorship. So that's their personal details, their current address, passport, copy, and those sorts of things. And at that stage, you'd also want to look at how and whether they're going to meet the English language requirement because if they can't or it's going to take longer than you expected then you'll need to kind of factor that into your timing or indeed you might not be able to proceed at all so it's important to establish that element right at the beginning um once you've kind of worked out that you are going to go ahead you have to go you have to go and request something called a defined or undefined certificate of sponsorship from the home office which you do through your online license uh, a defined certificate will be for those individuals broadly who are applying from outside the UK and an undefined certificate will be for those people uh, who are applying from within the UK or under the intracompany route. Um, so you request that allocation of a certificate and then that enables you to prepare the certificate itself and then finally you assign that to the individual and it's at that, that point that certain fees are paid um, so from that sort of point, your point on, you're you're kind of committed. So I've talked about paying the cost fee, and I, I've got a, a later slide that talks about the specific fees. So you pay a certificate of sponsorship fee and the immigration skills charge at the point at which you assign the certificate of sponsorship. Um, and then the third part of the process is the applicant uses that certificate to apply for their online visa. Um, that's something that they can do themselves, although typically the employer will support it. It's a fairly detailed form. It is possible to get it wrong. Um, it's something that we sort of support individuals and employers on, on a regular basis. So that's, that's the kind of the third key step. Um, and at that point, the individual, or it could be supported by the employer, they pay the applicable application fees. Um, and uh, that they, they submit the form online and that also the individual is, is prompted to book a biometric visa appointment. So they attend that appointment in their home country if they're applying from outside the UK um, and then they file their documents as part of that process. Usually that will be um, the passport, um, the, the actual physical passport. If they're coming with dependents, they may have to submit marriage certificates and uh, birth certificates. So that's really just to give you an overview of how it works in practice. In terms of the timing, how long is all of this going to take? You know, are we talking about days, weeks or months? So this is just an overview. It, it's very rough. It has to be sort of, I'd have to caveat by saying that um, because of various COVID restrictions, um, it's always slightly unpredictable. You know, it's, it's not entirely possible to say that it will go according to plan. Uh, but generally speaking, if everything works well, this is how, what you would be looking at, the sort of the time taken generally to prepare the documentation, to assign the certificate uh, and prepare the individual's visa application, 
for them to then book, be able to book an appointment at the visa application centre in their home country because that's going to be subject to availability. Um, and then the key bit is that, you know, once you've filed everything, the visa processing itself uh, is somewhere between all being well five to 15 days, five to seven working days if you pay a priority fee, um, but 15 days if you use a standard service. So that's, that's the sort of standard service um, and that's what you can generally expect COVID aside uh, once you get to that point. Um, so you're looking at anywhere between a couple of weeks um, and, and two, to, two to three months, really, just to give, again, to give you an overview of what to expect. And then last but not least, um, this is just to detail a bit more Mark mentioned in his slot that the fees come to around can come to around ten thousand pounds which is which is right depending on what sort of sponsor you are so it may be um that um you uh, can pay the lower fee so there i've talked about the immigration skills charge of a thousand pounds per year it's actually it can be um, £364 a year for a, a small sponsor or, or charity. Um, but if you're looking at £1,000 a year for a five-year visa, automatically that's £5,000, um, which you pay up front. Um, um, and so you can see broadly how the other how the other fees add up and how you get to that £10,000. And so these are fees that all have to be payable up front. Um, you can pass all of them on to the employee except the immigration skills charge. So you'd either get the employee to pay those at the time or you would pay them and, and then deduct that from the employee's salary potentially or, or have a sort of clawback system if they leave their employment early. Um, so, uh, and it is just on the immigration skills charge, it's worth noting that if the employee, in most cases, the employee sponsor, sponsorship ends early, that will be refunded pro rata by the Home Office. But otherwise, you're looking at a fairly substantial um, upfront payment for each employee that needs to be factored into whether or not this is something that's kind of viable for your business in the context of the particular role. So that's all uh, from me. Um, I hope that's been helpful um, and please feel free to answer any questions, ask any questions. FDF Awards. One of the most prestigious nights in the food and drink calendar is online 3rd of February. For details of this and other FDF events, including our online convention, visit our website, fdf.org.uk. FDF, passionate about food and drink. And that's it for today. I want to say a big thank you to all our speakers and contributors. I want to thank all our friends at Lloyds Bank for their very generous support for this important event. And I also want to wish you luck. The next few days and next few weeks are going to be extremely bumpy. As I said at the start, Brexit is probably the biggest challenge any of us would have expected to face in any business career had it not been for COVID-19. To do the two together at Christmas is a remarkable confluence of events and poses enormous burdens on our industry. I know that the uncertainty is crippling and the concerns that it raises are really serious for your business and its future. But I am confident that we can help you through that very difficult period and that whatever happens, this industry, this great industry will prevail. If you need more as a consequence of today, don't forget to get in touch with us at FDF or simply email me, ian.wright at fdf.org.uk. Good luck. 
Thank you for listening to this FDF podcast. FDF is the voice of the food and drink industry, supporting our members with the expertise to develop, grow and strengthen their business. To learn more about how we can help your business, contact us at members.inquiries at fdf.org.uk. There's no better time to become an FDF member.